This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Conde Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello, it's me. And our guest this week is the award-winning chef Missy Robbins, who we are so excited to have with us today. An avid traveller, she earned her stripes cooking in northern Italy, working everywhere from family-run trattorias to Michelin-starred restaurants, and then returned to the US to work at spots like Chicago's Spiaggia and New York's Soho Grand and Avoce. But it's her two restaurants in Williamsburg that have really cemented her as a culinary powerhouse. Lilia and Missy are two of the hottest, and I will say most impossible to get into, spots in Brooklyn, thanks to her unrivaled pasta dishes and exquisite attention to detail. Hello, Missy. Hi. How are you? I'm good. good. How are you? to have you here. Yeah. So happy to be here. Excited to get you out of the kitchen. Yes. (laughs) Me too. Um, How's your day been going? So far, so good. I I just went to Pilates. Oh, all right. So you've had a nice day. So far. I'm curious if we go back to the intro that Lali was giving you. You know, you got your early cooking start in Italy. And so I'm curious, like, when Italy and Italian cooking first captured your imagination? Well, I had been cooking for a long time seven years before I went to Italy. And I was about 28, 29. And I was supposed to do a semester abroad in Italy. I went to Georgetown University. They have this incredible villa outside of Florence in Fiesole that they own and they select 15 students a year and it's an art history program. I was an art history major and I bailed on going because I had transferred to Georgetown and I felt like I was going to miss out on something, which was a really silly, silly decision. So when I it was like around 27, 28, I felt this urge to go cook abroad and I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm probably never going to do it because when you go cook abroad, you generally aren't making any money and you're living above the restaurant and I felt like life was going to start happening and I was going to become an adult at some point and that wasn't going to happen. So I went to Italy and really with zero knowledge of the language I had minimal knowledge of regional Italian cuisine. I thought Italian cuisine was like really, really northern or red sauce from I grew up in New Haven, um, which is a has a big red sauce Italian community. And I really just fell in love with it when I was there. But when I came back, I was there for about six months. And when I came back, like I had been cooking, I guess what they called New American then. And I didn't want to get pigeonholed into being an Italian chef. And so I took the job at the Soho Grand, which it's funny that you know that because no one ever pays attention to that part of my resume. Um, Love the Soho Grand. Yeah, I I liked it. Um, (laughs) Spent a solid three and a half years there. Um, 
but I always had this interest in Italian ingredients and I was so intrigued when I got there and I worked in three different regions and the food was so different from region to region. So I was intrigued by it, but I wasn't quite ready. I, th I think I didn't think I had the knowledge to, to do Italian food and I wasn't quite there yet. And then I got a call from a headhunter uh, who wanted to place me at Spiaggia in Chicago. And I really, as lovely as the Soho Grand was, it wasn't fine dining. It was really more about the, the bar scene there. And I was a real fine dining person and I missed it. And I missed being in a place where it was really about food and beverage and wine and higher end stuff. And I had this opportunity to go be the chef at a four star restaurant in Chicago that happened to focus on Italian cuisine. And the, the chef, Tony Montuano, and I really clicked when we met and it just made sense. And so I did that and I did that for five years. And once I did it, I, I don't know how to go back now. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, in the prep for Lilia or in the past, like how often do you go back to Italy to kind of like get re established with what's going on? It depends. I mean, the goal is to go at least once a year. This year, I'm going three times on pretty long trips. I'm researching for my next cookbook, which is a book about pasta and coming out in fall 2020. And there is a regional section of pastas. And what's happened with me is I've cooked all these pastas for years. And I, I really researched heavily into regional Italian cooking and I haven't been to some of the places that I've cooked from and that I've learned from. And I thought it was really important to kind of go back and see those pastas in in their real form and see how I've interpreted them myself. Because obviously it's, a, it's an interpretation what I'm doing if I haven't seen them. Um, and it's been a kind of an interesting exercise. I just got back from the first trip I went in January and we, we did central Italy and a little bit of northern. And then uh, in May, I'm going back to northern Italy, Friuli, Trentino, uh, Lombardia, a little bit of Venice, and really just tracking down these kind of obscure pastas. And so when you're planning these mammoth research trips, how do you go about crafting your itinerary? Do you have notebooks? Do you have some giant Google spreadsheet of every restaurant that you want to try and hit? Kind of what's the strategy? No, I'm a little looser than than I used to be. And so I'm not like a total planner. It sort of starts with like, okay, what dates are we going? And then it kind of starts with where do we need to go? And then it goes to hotels. <laughs> and then kind of the restaurants. And obviously, like for some trips, the restaurants that you really want to hit. And then there's some restaurants that, you know, I've sort of moved a little bit away from needing to go to every Michelin star restaurant. Like it's not what I'm cooking these days. And while it can be inspiring to me, I think some of the more local Trattoria-esque places happen to inspire me more. And I can come back from those really rustic places and refine things more versus the other thing. And, and in this last trip, the best places we went were in small towns and they weren't famous places and they were charming and the food was amazing and the people cooking there were so passionate. And obviously it's amazing to go to the three-star Michelin restaurants and see how those chefs are interpreting Italian cuisine also. And that's how I used to live my life. I mean, Spiaggia is based in that. And so that was a really important part of my development when I was a little younger, but my food's just evolved into such a different thing now that it's it's really about just taking inspiration from ingredients and 
being in those regions and seeing how those ingredients are used more than going to the it restaurant of the moment always. And so, you know, obviously you've kind of clocked up a lot of miles um, (laughs) across Italy at this point. Um, Has there been, I don't know, a restaurant or a meal or an experience that you look back on even now and think that's what I want to create with my cooking, with my restaurants? Not necessarily. I mean, I think... Look, I think back in the day when I was first learning about Italy and I lived there, I think I wanted this Michelin star thing. And I wanted to do this fancy food in places like Del Pescatore, where Tony Montemano worked for a year before he opened Spiaggia. And it's what really connected us because I had eaten there when I lived there. I didn't work there. But I understood it and I understood where that was going. But I think there are places like that that are really fine dining, but they the food's not crazy fancy and you can relate to it so it's not it's not about one particular restaurant for me I've been inspired by places here I mean I go to Isodi a lot and Isodi always in in the West Village and it always reminded me of being in a small town in Italy and Lily is obviously a lot bigger than than Isodi but like being at the bar at Lilia was really inspired by me eating there on Sunday nights. I'm curious because we've talked to a lot of our like friends who are in the office who work at Bon Appetit about creating their cookbook, but we've never really broached like the insanity of opening a restaurant in <laughs> New York of all places. So when you're talking about Lilia, I'm curious just like how that idea to start your own restaurant kind of came about. When did it start kind of like percolating in your brain? Well, I always wanted to open my own restaurant. I started cooking when I was 22, my last semester of college. And I always said I'd have a restaurant by the time I was 30. And I opened Lily when I was 44. So I was late to the game. Um, But I kept getting these really important jobs and jobs that were forwarding my career and my knowledge and my confidence. And I I wouldn't have wanted to do it any other way. And so when I, I left Avoce in 2013 and really had zero plans. I, I mean, and no one believed me. I remember a phone call with Florence Fabricant and she kept saying, well, you must be doing something. And finally, I just lied and said I was writing a cookbook, which ended up being true. I did write a cookbook, <laughs> but um, like I didn't really have a plan. I had like a vision of like, oh, maybe I'll write a cookbook. I didn't even know what that meant. And um, and I thought I would do some traveling, but I, I really didn't want a job for a year. I wanted to take a year off and clear my head and just sort of figure out what I wanted to do. And and there was a part of me that didn't even know if I wanted to be in the restaurant business anymore. I knew I wanted to stay in food. I didn't know what that meant. And then as like I kept talking to people and kept sort of either not finding what I wanted or not finding the right fit or not finding the right partner, I realized it was probably really important for me to open my own place. And my theory behind it was I'll open my own place and if it doesn't work, I can always get a big job again. And and I knew I had that to fall back on and, and I didn't obviously open Lilia hoping that it would fail, but I just was like, all right, if it doesn't work, then whatever. And the and the process started, I um, ended up being partners with my neighbor, Sean Feeney. Um, he lived above me for many years and we became very good friends and he was in the finance industry and he came to me and said he wanted to be my partner. and. We decided to go for it, and we started looking at spaces. And 
you know, everyone says, how'd you choose Williamsburg? And I always kind of like to say that Williamsburg kind of chose me because I had zero intention. I knew nothing about Brooklyn. I was like a total West Village person who wanted to stay in the West Village and I wanted to open my restaurant in the West Village and it was really important to me and my vision of success was Manhattan and it was really quite closed-minded in hindsight. Um, and Sean had a connection to the space in that is now Lilia and he said, can you please go look at it? And I wrote him back, and I said, "You said I could swear, right?" I said, "I said I'm not fucking opening a restaurant in Williamsburg." That was my text to him, and I wish I could find it today. And he said, "Can you can you just like go look at it?" And I was like, "All right." So I went to look at it, and it was an it's an auto it was a former auto body shop, and there was a car in it. I mean, it was an operating shop, and I love design, and I kind of understand it enough to like look at the space and be like okay I I can see this but I was like but I he's texting me and he's like how is it and I was like it's great but I don't know where I am like I'm like confused and so we started going to Williamsburg like on weekends and we would walk around we look like total tourists and um, then we just decided to go for it we had been looking in the West Village and other places downtown and it was really cost prohibitive and I mean, we could have done it, but it would have been a must, much riskier business move as first-time restaurateurs. And so we decided to do Williamsburg, and I have to say it's probably the best decision I've ever made. Um, and and it's changed my life. I mean, we opened the second restaurant, Missy, in Williamsburg. I live in Williamsburg. I have no intention of leaving Williamsburg. Oh, so it, you actually moved to Williamsburg. I did. I did. <laughs> and I lost. Convert. And I lost a lot of bets. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone said, oh, you're going to move to Williamsburg. I'll bet you $10. I'll bet you. And I was like, I'm not moving to Williamsburg. Like, I thought that I would, like, open Lilia. It might do okay. I could, like, maybe pay my rent. And then I'd, like, go back to Manhattan and open more places. And that's just not how it happened. And and Lilia luckily became a, a popular place very quickly. And I just sort of needed to move there. I it, uh, My lease was up in the West Village. And I had some personal changes in my life. And it was just kind of time to go. And I actually never intended on moving to Williamsburg to stay there. It was eight months after Lilia opened. And I was like, I just need to move. I need to go to a grown-up apartment with an elevator and a dishwasher and a washer and dryer. And that's honestly, like, all I cared about. And that it was in Williamsburg and I could walk to work. And I've now been here almost three years, and there's just no reason for me to leave. And I I couldn't do the job I do and how I do it if I didn't live in Williamsburg. I I can go home to check on something. I can run back to the restaurant. I can go to the other restaurant. Like, it's very – it's a lifestyle decision for me. And so – it sounds like you had set yourself quite low expectations for the success of Lilia at the beginning. I just hoped that people would want to come eat there. Yeah. Like I didn't I had no idea what it was going to be like. I didn't know if people would come from Manhattan. I certainly didn't expect a three-star review from the New York Times. It was lovely when it happened and it happened very quickly after we opened, but I just wanted to open a restaurant and and really hoped that it would resonate with people. And I also changed the way I was cooking from Avoce to Lilia. Like it became much more homey and I never use the word rustic, but I'm sure a lot of other people would would use that because while it appears rustic, there's a lot that goes into the cooking. But I had never in my life served a pasta with red sauce at at a restaurant, and that one I wanted that to be the most popular dish at Lilia. It's not, 
but I wanted it to be. And I just really simplified things. And I, my goal was just to create this place that felt like home and a place that I want, if I wasn't working, that I would want to go every night. That was like the real goal of Lilia, to like welcome people into our home, make people feel like they were having a real sense of, I mean, the, uh, you've been there, right? I have. I've only been to the bakery because I can't get a table. Oh my god! It's a good thing. It's a good thing we're now friends. And you and, and look, there was a there was a sort of ulterior motive wow. to setting up this podcast. All right, you can come to Lilia and Missy. You can come to both. But um, yeah, I just it wasn't. It's not about setting low expectations because I always have very high expectations for myself. But I definitely just was entering into this unknown world as an owner, as a chef cooking food that had changed a little bit, as someone who disappeared off the scene for, by the time I opened Lily, it was almost, it was two and a half years from leaving Avoce to opening. It's a long time to kind of disappear. And I wasn't in the press when I left. I just wanted to kind of do my own thing and be on my own. And I, and I loved it. So it's not about setting low expectation. It's just sort of about being a little bit being realistic and knowing how hard it is to open restaurants in New York and knowing that you can be the best chef in the world and create a restaurant and it doesn't resonate with people or you can be an okay chef and have the right space and it resonates with people or it's the right timing. So luckily it worked um, and luckily it afforded me the opportunity to open the second place pretty quickly because Lilia just turned three in January and we opened Missy in September. Was there a moment in the, those very early days of Lilia when you suddenly thought, oh, I think this is this is something? Um, I'm a little bit more skeptical than that. Uh, my partner definitely, like, felt it before I did. But, like, I think as a chef, you're always questioning yourself and you always want to be able to make it better and you always want to do better. Um, so, yes, I saw it busy and I knew... I knew that like we were busy before the New York Times review and I knew that even if we got a shitty review, we would still be okay. But what the New York Times review did was kind of put us um, just on the map in an international and national way and, and made it more of a destination restaurant. And that's can be really helpful for longevity where you're not just sort of like the newest hot restaurant. And that's also what I didn't want to be like. I saw this press coming out and I saw people really excited to come. But to me, it's about like what like creating a place that's around for years and years and years and years and years. And that's very hard to do in New York. And um, having people that work for us for years also was really important to me and creating that team and family and all of that. So I don't know if there was a moment where I saw it, but I, I, I definitely still always think I can try better and do better and make it better. And I think that's what creates longevity is that desire to just not rest on your laurels. What did you feel like you could do differently, better, change up when you were opening Missy? No, no, that it was about like doing anything better. The The idea behind Missy, I always wanted to open a pasta focused place. So I had this idea a long time ago to do this pasta place that and I wanted it to be mostly 
the kitchen and the ki- have you been to Missy or are you going to tell me you can't get in there either? Can't get into Missy. I've had lunch at the um, the small the small bit at Lilia. Okay, um, all right. Yeah. Well, we're going to get you to both. <laughs> we're like one for, and like point we're five gonna, for two. We're going <laughs> to get you to both. Um, but Missy is centered around the kitchen and it has 35 seat counter seating around the kitchen. And that's what I wanted the restaurant to be. I wanted the small thing. And that didn't happen because it's now a 98-seat restaurant with this giant pasta-making room. And it's kind of, you know, it's not exactly the origin. But what happened was that wouldn't have been a great restaurant to open as my first thing, to focus so heavily on one thing that wasn't a proven concept. And what happened at Lilia, Lilia was not meant to be a pasta place. It was actually meant to focus more on vegetables and the whole experience and and seafood and the wood-burning grill and pasta was obviously a part of it because I wanted the full Italian experience, but it wasn't meant to be a pasta restaurant. And the pasta started getting a lot of attention, which was really made me happy because I've been honing my pasta skills for 15 years now and not including the time I spent in Italy. And I never really got attention for it at Voce. I mean, people like the food, but like I never, I was never in the conversation about pasta and so that was like a true honor for me that people were like really into what we were doing and I was doing some new stuff I had never done extruded pasta before Lilia I had only done handmade fresh pasta um, so that was different we worked really hard on on nailing that recipe and nailing the technique and what we found was that people really loved our vegetables and really loved the pasta and we also had this great demand for people to get into Lilia, and they and they couldn't. And it's not an exclusivity thing. We just happen to be a small restaurant. And I think when you see the space, people go, oh, my God, they have this huge corner. They're a 300-seat restaurant. But in reality, we're 70 seats, including the bar, six months of the year, eight months of the year. And then we have the patio that adds another uh, 36 seats. But it's a small place. And so um, – I think Missy gave us the opportunity to to focus on something that I love, cooking, which I've fallen in love with cooking vegetables and, and pasta, obviously. And it gave us this opportunity to have this real pasta room where that's sort of – I hesitate to use the trendy word laboratory, but um, it does – look like a laboratory it's shiny clean and it's the only thing that happens in there is pasta there's no like there's nothing to make it dirty it's like very about flour and eggs and flour and water um and that's it and whatever fillings might might be going in a pasta so it wasn't about like offering something necessarily better it was about sort of honing in on something that people seem to really love about us and and offering more opportunity and and doing it in a way that was comfortable for us and we chose Williamsburg to do it again because we wanted to be close to Lilia and Lilia wasn't that old especially when we signed the lease and when we found the space it, it was two years ago maybe I can't remember the exact date but like it, it was pretty soon after we after we open, you know, within a, two years. And so I think it was really important to be close to it. But also we love the idea of just expanding in the neighborhood and the community in South Williamsburg, what's going on there with, with Two Trees developing Domino Park and all that. Um, it was exciting to us to be a part of it. Um, we're in their first building. So okay. they bought up all the land on the waterfront and then they bought up land across the street and we're in their first building that they did at 325 Kent. And, uh, there's 500 apartments above us, and we're on the ground floor. What was it about the space that drew you? You know, Lilia is in a pretty crazy space. Um, what was it, it about wasn't, this one? It wasn't the space because the space is just new construction. Yeah. And so there was actually a challenge there 
Like, I just created this incredibly charming restaurant that had incredibly charming bones at Lilia. And how do I do that in this glass box? And it was a, ch- and I have really modern tastes. So, like, I like that, but my taste has definitely gone a little less super contemporary over the last several years. And I, I worked with a great architect who understood the vision and understood the necessity to bring some warmth, but there's only so much warmth you can bring to a glass building. So it wasn't it wasn't really the space itself. I mean, the space physically is much larger than Lilia, and it offered us the opportunity to be able to do things a little bit more properly, like have a proper pasta making room, have a proper locker room for our staff, have a proper staff bathroom, things that like we just didn't have room for at Lilia, um, have proper wine storage, like pretty much have proper everything. A coat closet, we don't have that at Lilia either. We we use our office at night um, <laughs> and we created a system, but like there are things that, so like physicality was a big one and we saw the opportunity to kind of correct things that we weren't able to do at Lilia, but it was really about the neighborhood and working with Two Trees and being a part of, of that South Williamsburg transformation. And watching it is so exciting. I mean, they're putting up the second tower right now, and they have two or three more to go. And the park really changed the neighborhood last year. And you see this just coming together of every culture, every age group. It's really incredible. I live three blocks from there. And so when the park first opened, I think it opened in June last year, I would like go get my coffee every morning and go sit down there. And it just has added something to the neighborhood. And we feel like we can add to that and be a part of it. And that that was more exciting than the actual physical, like this space is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It was a raw concrete and glass space when we saw it. Join me, Esther Perel, every Monday in my office on Where Should We Begin? I'm talking to couples and individuals about love and work, about turning conflict into connection. More than ever, our relationships define the quality of our lives. So let's explore the myriad of relational challenges together. See you Monday. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. You talked about taking the time for your coffee in the morning and about taking time off um, from being in a kitchen. And I know you've been pretty public with other publications about the stress of leading a kitchen. And I'm just curious what you've learned over the years about taking care of yourself, because it's, it's definitely really, not easy. It's really, really important. And I think in the in the age that I grew up cooking, it was like, you go, go, go. You don't ask for time off. You work in a place for at least a year. You like just went hard and I that after 20 years took a toll on me and I didn't realize it was taking a toll I had never taken extended periods of time off I had taken like a month when I moved to Chicago and a month when I moved back probably but that's not very long when you're moving and adjusting to a new job and all that stuff and I just you know I didn't realize I I left Avoche for many reasons and 
ultimately it just wasn't the right long-term fit for me. There was nothing wrong. It just like I had a vision and they had a vision and I, I just don't think that it was meant to be and it wasn't a bad thing. But ultimately I realized that I was pretty burnt out when I left and I had decided to take a year off because I thought it would be fun and I thought I'd only last three months. So I intentionally left in May so it could be during the summer and the first few weeks were really weird for me and then I kind of was like, oh, this is fun. I'm like going out to lunch and shopping and doing all the things I shouldn't be doing. And then I really settled into it and I, and I really liked it. And then I got the itch to go back to work, but it just took a lot longer. But I think what I learned, I mean, I lost 40 pounds in that time. Um, I changed my eating habits dramatically. And, you know, I started working out more regularly. And we really try to instill that stuff in our staff now and really – um, it's really important to us to just live a healthier lifestyle. And just for me, I think it's, you know, I'm 48 now and I'm not 25. And I think it's important to sort of recognize that what your body's capable of at 48 versus 22. And that's that takes a lot mentally to, to do that. And there are times when I have to say, all right, I've just worked five nights in a row and I can't be on the line tomorrow. Like my body's just shut down. And that's a tough thing to accept, and but I do it because I know in the long run it makes me better. You know, the working out thing is also like it's hard, and I'm not always amazing at it, but I try to be. And the Pilates thing, like that's a religious thing for me. I never cancel my appointments unless there's something like very important going on, but I kind of – that's like private time to me. Um, and just sort of like going to bed earlier and – Waking up and being productive in the morning has become really important to me, whereas like when I was in my 20s and 30s, I'd sleep till 10 and I'd, you know, screw around all morning. And now those hours are, are really, really important and they make me more productive once I get to the restaurant um, later in the day so that I can like taste things and be attentive and talk to guests and all that stuff. So I don't know. It's all it's it's not just one thing. It's it's like allowing yourself to live a balanced life um, and trying to encourage that with the people around you too. And so we did an episode um, a little while back about why you should take all of your vacation days. And we sort of fielded questions and thoughts from some of our listeners about it and what their own personal experiences were. And a lot of women said that they really struggle with the guilt that comes with taking all the time off. Even though it's offered, even though it's part of their contract, they feel guilty not being there. How have you taught yourself to overcome the guilt of stepping away from your own restaurant? You know, it's when I. It's funny you ask that. And when I when I was at Avoce, I negotiated a pretty hefty vacation plan because it was really important to me. And I came from a really good company when I was at Spiaggia and and I was moving into this role where I was gonna run two restaurants and I felt like I was at an age where I sort of deserved to have a better vacation package and they went along with it. And I had a crazy vacation package plus an annual trip two weeks to Italy. I worked there five years. I took that trip once and (laughs) once and Um, which was my own fault. It was no one else's fault. And when I left, I think I had eight weeks vacation that they needed to pay me out. Um, So you can see how I didn't used to be great about it. And you wonder why I was burnt out. But there, there was, I don't know if it was necessarily guilt, but there was like, we were always short staffed. 
at, when I was there and we were always like struggling and I always just felt like there wasn't always great times to, to take off. And after taking basically two years off, it it's not like it's not optional for me anymore. And I even know that like I need to go away for short like two dayers, whether it's to Chicago or you know, out east or whatever it is, and that re- rejuvenates me. And that's a personality thing. I don't know that that's, that's important for everyone, but from there's two things that happen. One, it's an energy thing and just rejuvenating as a human, but also as a chef, just getting inspiration. And it's not always about going to Italy. You know, I went to New Orleans, uh, I think in December, like it was right, it was like the first weekend that I went away after we opened, a couple months after we opened, and I took a couple of days and I went to New Orleans and I ate in all these fabulous places and I came home with like three dish ideas and they had nothing to do with Italian cooking, but I translated them. And and again, it was like ingredient driven. I ate these incredible crab claws that they um, leave the shell on the bottom and it comes like that and I never had them before and they're now like when we can get them we do them in the wood burning grill and it's become like a thing for us and so I think you can find I think it's really important when you go between one restaurant in Williamsburg to the other restaurant in Williamsburg to the same cafe every day to your apartment and you don't get out you become very stifled and your brain becomes very stifled so um, now I just you know, some of the trips I'm taking are kind of not optional. Like I have to research the book, so I'm forcing myself to go on these longer trips. I, I normally probably wouldn't go away as much in one year, but I also think it's important and we we encourage that for our staff. And like, obviously you have to say no sometimes. There are times of the year that doesn't work. There's other people who have requested and you can't always like say yes. Luckily, I'm finally in a position where like me being away doesn't necessarily affect everyone. And you know, you're also in touch now. Like, you you know what's going on in your restaurants via Instagram, via email. My chefs write me recaps every single night. The GMs write recaps every night anyway of what goes on. So you're very in touch and you're a phone call away. Like, if something is really wrong, obviously, if you're in Italy, you're not getting on a plane and coming home unless there's a real emergency. But, like, anything that someone needs to contact you for you're available and I think I think you need to be available and you know I say to my team like listen guys like I'm really on vacation this time if if like you need something I'm around but like try not to like ask me the price of asparagus you know like whatever whatever silly thing but I think you want to make yourself available and that makes it more comfortable to go away more often um but again it sort of just goes back to having been doing this a really long time and being at a different stage in my life. Um, um, But I don't ever want anyone, you know, I missed a lot of weddings and a lot of holidays when I was younger and I was afraid to ask for time off. And I don't, I don't want that to be the case with, with people. And so we try really hard to give everyone what they want, which can't always happen, but we try. Do you think that your attitude towards managing your staff and giving them that time and kind of giving them the opportunity for like in quotes self-care is something that's spreading further throughout the restaurant industry like do you think the the kind of like go 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 attitude is changing I I think so I see it changing I've seen it changing for a couple of years and it was for me going back to 
opening a restaurant, it was it was just sort of a non-negotiable part of how I wanted to open, especially for myself. Um, I just wasn't willing, you know, obviously when we first opened, I was there seven days a week for a long time. And I did that again at Missy for the first five, six weeks. And then I was like, okay, like I don't, this isn't doing anyone. I get to the point where it's not doing anyone any good, especially me, but it's also not doing the team any good because I start getting grumpy and I'm really tired and I'm not thinking clearly. And that's when I know like, okay, cut it. Like you got to take a day off. And I get to those points a lot. And I think like as an owner, you never have a hundred percent a full day off. So you have to take pockets of time, but I do, I do see it changing and I and I hope that we can encourage that change. We're actually starting um, a fitness program for our teams at both restaurants. It's going to happen in, in the park um, and we're bringing in a trainer two days a week and yoga two days a week and uh, so one of our team members is starting a running club one day a week and that'll happen four days a week to start and we hope that people get really into it. Um, and it and it doesn't cost them anything. It just costs them maybe an extra hour of sleep and getting up. And um, but a lot of them already work out and they're into it. And I think this is a great team building thing. And and yeah, I do. I I see a lot of people shifting and shifting into like mental health care and physical health care. And um, I was just at a panel in Philadelphia. Um, where Mike Solomonoff was talking about a lot of that stuff also. And I think there are people shifting, and I think I think there's an expectation of shift now. I'm curious now that Missy is open, you were just named a James Beard semifinalist, and Lilia's rocking per use. Like, what would you go back and tell 10-year-old Missy, or even like 2016 Missy, about what was to come? Oh, my God. I mean, 2010 Missy was... Uh, I mean, 10-year-old Missy. 10-year-old Missy. I mean, 2010 works, too. (laughs) 10-year-old Missy was, I mean, cooking wasn't a thing for me. I I had no idea. I wanted to be a therapist, which I basically am. And um, I, at one point, wanted to be a divorce attorney. Um, around that age, and which is really weird, but obviously I saw someone go through a divorce, not my, not my parents, but friends of my parents, and I was around it, and I was fascinated by the dynamic. That was like maybe at 12 years old. Um, <laughs> that you know, is the age when everyone's parents get divorced. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, did you say 2016? I mean, I had no idea what would happen. I think, I think look, you know, I lived in this world that was about reviews and Michelin stars and achievement and all that stuff. And one of the things when I opened Lily was I didn't want my life to be about that. And I just wanted to create a great environment for guests and staff and myself. And I wanted to be happy doing what I was doing and cooking great food. And I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned is if you just set out to do that and you set out to do something that makes you happy whether whatever it is whatever industry you're in is those accolades will come and and it's not about the accolades because at the end of the day like that's not what keeps you going what keeps you going is is really having happy guests in your restaurant every night and um the accolades are certainly appreciated and it's really nice to be recognized you know, by your peers and by the industry and, and all of that is amazing. And I, and I wouldn't want to, you know, give that back. Um, but it hasn't be, it's not the mission anymore. And when, when I was at Avoce, 
achieving Michelin stars was was a mandated mission given to me. And it wasn't motivating. It was actually in this way just intimidating and you kind of felt not fear, but like you you felt this pressure to perform in a way where you weren't necessarily always being the most soulful that you could be as a manager or as a cook because you were like looking at a dish and saying, oh, is the Michelin inspector going to like this? It, are, are they going to think it's pretty enough? Are they going to think it's good enough? Are they going to think it's high end enough? And that's not a way to cook. That should just come from your cooking and from your heart. And if that happens, awesome. And if it doesn't happen, I have full restaurants every night. And that's really, at the end of the day, the goal is to have full restaurants and happy people. And so I I think I would just tell people to focus on that and myself to focus on that. And it, and it worked. Um, and not focus on sort of the external bullshit that comes with whatever industry you're in. And so to wrap things up with, I don't know if this is an easy question or a hard question. <laughs> I think it might be a hard one, which is um, outside of Italy, where do you go to find that perfect bowl of pasta? Wow. Um, look, I think there are a lot of people cooking a lot of people cooking really bad pasta in the United States right now. There are a lot of people <laughs> cooking really good pasta in, in New York. And, you know, I think um, one person that I always think about who never gets talked about in the pasta conversation is Marco Canora from Hearth. And he's a friend, but I also have always really respected him as a chef and his respect for Italian tradition. And um, he makes this rigatoni dish. And I don't, I honestly, I haven't been to Hearth probably in two years, but like I think about this dish all the time. He also makes the best gnocchi I've ever had in my life. And I can't replicate them to, for anything. I've tried, I've asked him his technique, he's given it to me. And I just, I can't, I don't know what he does. But I think that's, that's one place um, that sort of doesn't get talked about in terms of pasta. And that's not his main focus, but I think you can get a pretty a pretty good bowl there. And there are others, too. I mean, I go to East Sodi if I want Cacio Pepe. Um, Hilary Sterling, who used to work with me at Avoce and is at Vix now, um, is an incredible pasta cook, incredible. And, I mean, we have very similar styles. We work together a long time, but I think she makes incredible pasta. Um, Justin Smiley's uh, pasta with chicken liver is one of the one of the bowls that I like crave throughout the city. Um, so there are people, there are pockets here and there. There are places to go. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank um, you. If people maybe can't get into Lilia but want to keep up with what you're doing, uh, where can <laughs> they find you on the internet? They can find me at Lilia. NewYork.com, MissyNewYork.com, MissyRobbins.com, um, and obviously all of those accounts on uh, Instagram is the best way probably to keep up with us at Lilia. What Lilia New? Also the same, Lilia New York, and then my Instagram is Missy A Robbins. Um, so, and I'm much better when I'm traveling at Instagram than in my day-to-day life. Everyone is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. I'm at Lale Hannah. We'll talk to you next week. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker 
to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.